Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. People want to feel like the place that they work at matters, matters to the world, that they matter, and that they have a, a, an opportunity to learn things. And learning things, you know, it's either technical skills, soft skills, or just an enhancement of their own souls. And not, not to get all pseudo-spiritual, but if they feel like they're becoming better people, not just better professionals, but better people as a result of working in the organization, that's the thing. This is David Dressler, a leadership coach and strategic advisor to purpose-driven entrepreneurs. He's the co-author of the 10-year plan and one of the previous co-founders of Tender Greens, a successful and purpose-driven restaurant chain in the USA. David, as you will find out, is a force of nature. He will share his learnings on how to scale a purpose-driven business over a 10-year period, but also how they worked actively clarifying and activating their purpose in the everyday context of running and growing a restaurant business. He says that this actually became our competitive edge, and he also talks about how they approached and planned growth without making a compromise on their purpose. He shares how they build culture and the employee experience that unleash their potential of their people and how that was key to build excellent operational standards. We also dive into the pains of growing a business and what it means for you as a founder and much more. Before you tune in, please sign up for a weekly newsletter packed with more Maverick insights, strategies and tools. Find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. Now, it's time to grab your pen and notebook. Here is a founder story that will make an impact on the way you think and do leadership as well as business. Enjoy. As you know out there, I'm extremely uh, interested, but also try to live my own life behind purpose. And I want to build, you know, businesses, the podcast here was put in the world to, you know, make the world a better place, had a deeper purpose than just being a podcast or the companies I'm involved with. is not just companies. They, they need to make some kind of change in the world. And today's guest is an absolutely great example about how you actually can take your, your purpose and a business idea, put it together and actually make change and impact in the world. And I'm very excited to have you here on the show today, David. Welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's really great to be with you. I love talking with you. Yeah, David, and I've been lucky uh, to to read your book prior to this and your journey and I talked with you prior to that. And uh, and you've been really on an interesting journey over uh, over a decade, building a business from, from, from a simple idea to uh, those tender greens to uh, a a quite a big business that was scaling up and a lot was happening be- before the pandemic as well. But it would be really, really good for, for people out there uh, because we are a global podcast. You're based in the US. I'm here in the UK to maybe hear about your journey and Tender Green and what was it all about and what was the intent behind it? Sure. So again, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. It's really a pleasure to talk to you about this. And um and yeah, it's, it was a, it's a remarkable ride. My life before creating my own company was uh, as an executive in the luxury hotel business. And uh, I was one of those guys that was uh, sort of a driven uh, career advancement person. I uh, worked six cities in six years for one company, 
had uh, nothing in my fridge but a six pack of beer and some mayonnaise. I uh, had no furniture. And uh, I never really asked myself a lot of questions about what I wanted, really. I just did it, what was in front of me. And at some point that started to itch. I think one, because I was getting myself in a little over my head as a young executive, always just going for it and not asking for help. And two, um, I was starting to feel the entrepreneurial itch, the need to go out and create something for my own. Um, and it wasn't until I landed at a beautiful little luxury hotel in Santa Monica, California, that I met my two partners, um, my two future partners, uh, Eric and Matt. They were within six months of age of me, and we were all sufficiently burned out of working for the man. And so we, we started talking about this idea of a, a little restaurant that could be a lot of little restaurants one day. And we began to plan our exit. Um, in 2006, uh, we managed to raise enough money to jump ship, to uh, start our own business. We opened our first restaurant. It was an overnight sensation and um, we were off to the races and we had over a 10 year period, um, an awesome run. We opened uh, 30 of them. We grew the business to hundred million in revenue. We had 1700 employees at our peak. Uh, we were on two coasts. We, um, and I think the thing that I'm most proud of in all of that is that we managed to build a culture that felt very much like a loving environment where people could express themselves, where people could um, grow in ways that worked for them. Uh, the culture was um, a special, almost uh, unicorn of a company where everyone contributed, everyone mattered, and there was a really, really good feeling of, uh, of unity. We managed to do some really special things that were beyond the pale of um, just operating a day-to-day -day restaurant. We improved a lot of lives, uh, and the company continues to do that. It continues to be a source of brightness in the world. And so I think that's, my, uh, that's the, the legacy of it and the beauty of it. Um, in 2016, we had, we attracted the attention of a, a great investor uh, to scale the company, and um, we provided a remarkable exit for um, for our legacy shareholders, which really felt good to to uh, live the promise uh, that we made, and um, and at some point, um, I think. As the company grew and as the complexities changed, I also started to feel like maybe it was time for me to consider um, a new adventure. I had watched us professionalize the company, hire amazing executives that, um, that could grow the next phase beyond my abilities, beyond my partner's abilities. And so uh, we phased out. And when when I knew that that was coming up, when I again started to feel the itch like I had felt in my hotel days, I knew that I had to be mindful about it because I had created a culture that was part and expression of me. And so I began a two-year process of, of finding my replacement, training my replacement, saying a long goodbye. And just before the pandemic, thankfully, I transitioned away uh, from the company saw the team in full flight and and I'm, I'm so thankful and grateful that it was uh, that team that negotiated the many many hills and valleys of of the pandemic and i had intention to um to take a week off to build a treehouse for my daughter and to uh and then to hang up my shingle as a as an advisor and coach i had gone back to school got a, an ifc certified coaching degree and because during that two-year period of saying goodbye, I was thinking about, well, what am I going to do next? And Michael, the, the, the thing that I love to do most was to help people get unstuck, to help them navigate their own scale, their own personal scale. And so uh, I started out as a coach, and it turned out that the pandemic was a good time to be helping people, to be of service to people who were coming up against it. 
And, um, and that's what I've done. I, I'm an advisor and coach to uh, founders primarily, but also to hired executives. When I was in coaching school, um, I realized that many of the amazing people that I was training with were great at asking skilled questions. They were thoughtful, they were insightful, and they were kind, but they had never built a business. Uh, and so the fact that I've spent uh, over a decade building a substantial business gives me an ability to understand what founders and executives go through uh, at all levels of growth and to speak a language that's important for them. It's hard to ask for help and it's great to receive help that is uh, like-minded. So that's what I do. I help founders navigate the winds of scale. I help executives understand founders so that they can protect the culture that made the company successful to begin with. And as a coach, holistically, I'd like to say that people who run companies often find, find themselves in two boats. Either they're one of two boats. They're either um, managing great businesses, but dragging their lives behind them or they are having good lives, but struggling at work. And either way, my mantra has become over time, happier at work is happier at home and happier at home is happier at work. The two are inextricably linked. And so if I can support a leader to be a leader, a strong leader, both at home and at work, then I feel like I'm doing my job. I guess from me, when you said from the beginning, when you were an executive in the, the luxury hotel business to, to start your own business, that has been a battle you have had to take as well, because running your own business, especially in the startup years takes, you know, you know, you know, all your waking time and, and focus, I guess. Uh, and I guess that that journey and that, that battle where exactly trying to find the balance is, is that something you see many, many founders Really, that's what they're, they're struggling with. I don't want to be honest about it because they maybe think it's going to make them look weak. Everybody, we're all trying to do the very best that we can. And the pandemic has been a great teacher in terms of how we keep all the plates spinning. And uh, there's always one that's teetering on the verge of collapse. And the question is, how do we, how do we keep them all spinning? How do we give them the focus that they need because they're all deserving of our time? and we are deserving of receiving the gifts from them. So how do we, how do we manage them and, and, uh, and give a little bit of love to everything that needs us so that we can receive that love back and get nourished by it. When you think about it back to your, your time when you started out the business with, with 10 degree and where you're going to now, at that point, you wanted to be an entrepreneur. You wanted to, to be a business owner, uh, I don't know if you've decided already then that what roles, CEOs, uh, chief people officer, as you divide it up between you, um, how was that putting that, you know, identity, you know, on the shelf, selling a business and saying, now I'm going to go and be a coach because it's two different seats. It's totally different seats in, in my view. Uh, do you still have that itch that you want to go back and be the CEO? Or have you dealt with that identity check that now I'm no longer a CEO. I'm actually just the person that helps and support the CEO. I don't know. I, I can't say never say never. If, um, if I got the right itch that was uh, a full expression of who I am, meaning that the job was labeled CEO and it was running something that was meaningful to me. Amazing. But what I do know now is that I have a bunch of experience and I love giving it away. I love uh, being of service to others. I love being the guy that can see around corners for people and ask good questions to help them come up with their own wisdom. And I'm actually building a business of that. So I am a CEO in a way, right? Uh, I'm a CEO in a service company that uh, is using all of the stuff that I collected over years and and uh, putting it out for people who need it. You know, the, the book is a gift to the restaurant business or to any purpose-driven business as a, as a guide for seeing around corners. And my work with individuals of going deep into what we call a 10-year plan um, is exactly that it's how do you create a purpose-driven business and how do you take care of all of the pieces of it uh, so that it can thrive i love doing that 
I love being uh, useful to, to those who are uh, committed to that idea. And that's a great business for me to be in. Yeah, because it, it leads very well into the, the next question I had to you as well about the 10 year plan, because when you read the book and, and some of the other stuff I've read about you and, and 10 degree, and it's like you from an outset as a team, you had an idea about this is not a quick one. We need time to do it right because we don't just want to build restaurants. We want to do restaurant with the right ingredients, the right food, the right people, the right impact and community. Um, can you tell a bit more about having that as a starting point, saying that we have a 10-year plan instead of a three-year plan? What's often talking about today when you want to open? When the three of us were, um, were writing our business plan, we knew that we wanted to open a bunch of our restaurants. We didn't want to open just one. We wanted to make an impact on communities up and down the California coast. We wanted to go to other places. Those were our big dreams. And so when we thought about that, um, we realized that wasn't going to happen in one, two or three years. It wasn't going to happen in five years. And the more that we crafted that business plan, the more that we massaged this idea of, if you could have it all your way, what would this look like? the more we realized that it was a big commitment that we were making. And one of the biggest commitments that we were making is that we were asking people that we knew personally to write checks to contribute to this. We were saying, hey, you for whom $10,000 is a lot of money, we're asking you to write this check, we're asking you to give us this check, and then we're asking you to forget that you gave it to us for a long time. Because we're not going to we're not going to be able to pay a dividend. We're not going to pay your money back in three years. And most importantly, we're going to take every cent that we receive and we're going to plow it into growing the company. So what you're investing in is not just one restaurant. You're investing in the totality, the totality of our ability to bring this 10-year plan to fruition. So don't ask us next Christmas, hey, when are we going to see a check? Because you're not going to see one. That's a big thing to say to somebody who you know personally. And then to each other, the, 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 the three partners. These three founders, what happens in two years when you when you get an itch or when some other shiny thing shows up? Are you committed? Right. So uh, and then to our employees, how are we going to take care of them over the next few years? Give them the same opportunities that we're trying to give ourselves. And so we called our company TYP Restaurant Group. When we incorporated in 2004, we named it TYP, 10 year plan. Um, I told this story a lot. The first safe box uh in our first restaurant the combination was 10 3 30. 10 guys 10 years three guys 30 restaurants so we were committed to this ideal and that was the story that we sold to our investors and that's what we delivered on in year nine was the exit strategy the exit um, liquidity event for them and um you know as you write a, a, a business plan, Michael, as you know, and as, as you refine it, and as you meet with investors to pitch it, you get a lot of questions back. And each time we got questions back, we refined that pitch. We refined that story because, it, because we got a lot of really smart questions. And those smart questions deserved answers, not just flippant answers like, sure, sure, just give us your money and be quiet. Like, wow, that's a really thoughtful idea that we need to consider. And that might have been about marketing. It might have been about corporate governance. It might have been about HR, whatever those questions were, we needed to answer them. And so we did. So we ended up with this very thoughtful business plan that wasn't just about our cash on cash return. It was about the, the ethos of the company. How are we going to treat people? How are we going to grow? How are we going to train and develop people? So that we thought through those things. And, and as you and I were talking about earlier, Michael, we still made our fair share of mistakes, but at least we had a, a foundation for a business that, um, that made sense to us and that we felt could be the springboard for a rich culture. Yeah, and you talk about, um, you know, you delivered on the 10-year plan, but also talk about in the book of this power of clarity you had as a group on you know your purpose your mission your vision and how you wanted to build a special place to work because if you got that right you believe that the rest will take care of itself 
that was principle what I read in the book. So so how do you keep that? Because you know, as you meet challenges, these are often the things that are, you know, put in the background or dismissed uh, in a way sometimes. Because now we need to make some money to survive. How did you kept that purpose? vision and mission i'm sure lots of other people out there that are listening in now thinking about how do they actually keep that as they're growing a very successful business one of the reasons that we resisted in the early days writing down a mission and principles because we didn't actually start with one we had it in our heads not fully baked but we were busy being it and i, I can remember so many times having this discussion with eric uh, my partner he would say, I don't just want to have a mission statement to have it on the wall somewhere. I don't want to just have it on the cover of the training manual. I want us to embody it. And I would agree. And so we were just being those people. We we're being those leaders that all came out of hiring high school students who had some degree of parenting happening in their home. Maybe they had a mom, but no dad, a dad, but no mom. Maybe they lived with their grandparents we found ourselves giving life skills training as much as on the job training to those kids that got us into our dad energy around being a leader. Um, so we were just embodying it. And then as the company started to grow, and I think this is an important part as the company started to grow and we were less involved directly in people's training or as people in people's um, hiring onboarding, we realized, yeah, we really actually have to write this down so that our managers in restaurants, four, five, six, 10, 20, can refer to something that will help them understand it. First, we have to make sure that we're hiring people who are thoughtful about these kinds of things. But second, we have to give them language. And so we sat with somebody to distill it out. And that distilling process really got us like committed, recommitted to our own cultural heritage, like, like if, if, if culture is the product of intention supported by action, we need to be in lockstep with each other that if we make decisions and they go counter to culture, that we need a, we need a, like a, somebody to remind us. And so when we actually put out our mission and principles to, to our company, we said, by the way, this is not just us telling you how it is at Tender Greens. It's you absorbing it and saying that you have a right and a responsibility to call us out if we ever screw this up. And we have lots of examples in the book of, of times where we made decisions, total heartfelt, what we thought were smart decisions, but, but somebody in the organization said, David, is this really creating restaurants people really love? Is this really living up to our principles? And then we'd have frank conversation. And sometimes it would be, you know what? No, you're absolutely right. We screwed the pooch on this one. We didn't, we didn't handle this right. And then we'd have a chance to backstep. And one of the things that that does when, when you have a bad day and you make a bad decision and you have the chance to have a do-over, it affirms in the organization that, hey, it's okay for the, 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 the bosses to screw up. And wow, they actually listened to me and they did the right thing. And we all had a hand in that together. And that creates purpose and that deepens culture and that makes everybody feel like they're contributing. And that's pretty awesome. You get to use every opportunity as some kind of shameless, blameless teaching and learning moment for everybody. As uh, Eric used to always say, in that way, everybody's got uh, one hand in front of them being pulled along by some teacher and everybody's got one hand behind them pulling somebody along so that we're a, a chain of people learning and growing. And that was for real. And it's not, it's, it's not just hyperbole. It's, it's a real thing that, that happens. I love the way you talk about as well, the, the life skills and how exactly helping people to get skills, they can use transferable skills and, you know, one of the things I've been asked a lot about in my career, why did you spend so many years with McDonald's? Exactly that is why I got transferable skills. They were making me better at things. They were making me a better person or a better leader or whatever it is. I got something with me on my journey. It was not just a job. 
it was much more than than that. Uh, so it's also interesting when you talk about that thing, you like a, a chain of people that's lifting each other up. And you launched this project in the book, and that, that made me really interesting. Probably a bit halfway, a bit longer in your journey, you launched a sustainable life project. It was really about these young people in the communities you are a part of. Can you talk a bit about that and what that did to your your business at that point? Oh, man. Um, so Eric really deserves all the credit for the Sustainable Life Project, um, but I'll tell you about it. So SLP was born uh, because we remember I, I talked about these these kids that we hired from Venice High in the early days. And we also hired some folks who um, who were struggling. And we saw that we could make an impact if we could say, hey, this is a place where you can come and learn some life skills. This is a place where you can learn a job. Who could we benefit? And we saw that, that um, uh, emancipating foster youth were a, an at-risk group that we could have an impact on because due to the fact that they don't have a lot of stability in their formative years, they're not learning life skills. They, uh, they don't typically uh, perform well with responsibility only because they're so busy trying to keep themselves alive. Many of them uh, impacted by heavy duty trauma in their younger years, just the displacement alone from family to family, let alone whatever violence happened in their in their really, really early formative years, there's high degrees of addiction. And, you know, it's, it's hard to get to work if you can't even take a shower or shave or wash your clothes or what have you. So uh, we spearheaded the SLP project as a means to partner with local organizations who were helping and supporting at-risk foster youth, but who had reached a certain place where they were a little bit self-sufficient and, and really just needed somebody to give them a chance. Um, and the idea was let's give them life skills training, job skills training, put them through an apprenticeship. And if they can make it, if they can deliver uh, their 50%, we'll meet them the other half with a job and a career training. And so they started in the dish room, just like everybody else starts in the dish room. And if they could make it through, if they could show up on time, if they could show up groomed and ready, and if they could do good work, uh, then they could go on and learn pantry. Then they could, you know, move along the progression. And we had some remarkable uh, people who suited up, who showed up and who did it, and who are now in management positions in the company. And they were supported, uh, to answer your question, Michael, they were supported by some great big-shouldered, heart-centered leaders in our organization, executive chefs who ran our restaurants, who said, yeah, I'm going to take this on. I'm going to challenge myself to be a big brother or to be a dad or a mom to, um, to these kids and make an impact in their lives. So what it did, not only did it um, help these uh, emancipating foster people, but it also it also helped us grow our consciousness around helping, being of service. And it was very frustrating at times. There were some sad goodbyes for people who just couldn't get out of their own way and make it work. Uh, but by and large, there were many successes, enduring successes. People who maybe they maybe they stayed with Tender Greens and they and they grew in the ranks. Or maybe they went on because they grew to be self-confident young warriors who really wanted to go to nursing school. And our feeling was, great, use us as the stepping stone to get into something bigger and better that's more in tune with your life purpose than the restaurant business might be. But what a great thing to have been able to say that we created an opportunity for them to move on. Yeah, I love the last thing you say there about giving the, the confidence because that's often what we need as any individual. We need that confidence to to take the next step to be able to to move on. I think it's it's a so beautiful thing. And uh, and how was that for the organization? Because I guess that was uh, it was it was like a 
it was not a charity because there was like a, a business outcome. You got some talent inside your business, but what did that do to the business? How did people feel that you were doing that piece of work and the employees, how were they engaged with this whole thing? I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say that it was perfect because it, when you have a job to do as an executive chef running a restaurant and one of your people is struggling or doesn't show up repeatedly, um, that's hard. You know, and 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 some of some of these foster youth were were deeply troubled and had a hard time with the responsibilities. They had a hard time with authority sometimes, and so they would push back. So it wasn't always ideal, but I, I think by and large, if you ask the executive chefs who participated and who sponsored one of these these people, um, was it worth it? I think they would say for sure, and so. As a practical matter, uh, it provided some staffing. It wasn't a major source of, of staffing, but it was a source of staffing. But I think most importantly, it created consciousness around being of service, not just for the executive chefs who were the mentors for these for these young people, but also for everybody in the organization to know, to the extent that they knew, well, this company believes enough in this kid to bring them in and train them and, and hold them accountable and teach them skills. I like the idea that I work for an organization that believes in something like that. That creates a, a level of engagement that I think um, a lot of companies miss that they, that the, that the, the purpose of the enterprise is to create value in many different ways. One of those is societal value. And so I think if, if you're, one of the things that the pandemic has done is it, it, it's made uh, restaurateurs and, uh, and other business operators a little gun shy because the margins are slim and it's hard to do stuff and staffing is such a problem. But if there's a way to make a difference, even if it's, I don't know, I used to take, we'd take the office staff out in downtown Los Angeles and everybody would get a pair of gloves and everybody would get a trash bag and we'd go pick up trash for half an hour. We'd be out in the sun, we'd get sun on our faces and we'd pick up trash. That's one thing. And I don't think we, we did this intentionally, but sometimes people would end up, you know, you got, you got 20 people out there with trash bags and they're wearing tender greens t-shirts and, and it's a nice way to say, Hey, we we're here and we care. But beyond that, beyond anybody seeing the right thing that you're doing, we all feel like we're doing something valuable. We all feel like we're making a difference. Feeding people in a soup kitchen, picking up trash, sponsoring something, volunteering at the VA. I, I don't know. Whatever it is that we can do to, to make a difference, I think companies should do that because it's teaching young people civic service it's teaching responsibility it's creating community it's worth it in uh and that of course in, impacted the culture set so so how did is there like anything in your on your people journey you would say that was like unique for you to be able to create this kind of journey for people because i guess what you are alluring to is also that people came and started working with you and they stayed for a longer period and therefore you were able to build this culture you had yeah, thank you. I mean, yes, it's, it's, I think it's a retention tool because people feel like the place that they work at matters. That not only do they matter to the organization, but the organization does something that matters. I think that's really important and underappreciated by employers that the more that they create a soulful work environment that makes a difference or seeks to make a difference or cares beyond the transaction, the more young people, especially now, feel connected and feel loyal and are less likely to look for the next thing. People want to feel like the place that they work at matters, matters to the world, that they matter and that they have a, a, an opportunity to learn things. And learning things, you know, it's either uh, technical skills, soft skills, or just an enhancement of their own souls. And not, not to get all like pseudo spiritual, but if they feel like they're becoming better people 
not just better professionals, but better people as a result of working in the organization. That's the thing. I love that, David, because that's very much in line with uh, one of my you know, big believers in drive from Daniel Pink. And he talks about autonomy, purpose, and uh, mastery. And uh, I've always been a try to myself to lead lead through those things and create uh, frameworks and organizations and teams when I've been able to do that, that could operate under this. And I can hear that as a similar kind of thinking here. But one of the things I was thinking as I was reading the book, and maybe some people, if they're sitting out there listening to this, has been on the website and look at Tender Green and think about, this is a, you know, a, a chef-driven environment. Like this is a not cocky uh, food. It's not factory farm food. This is like real food they're making in these kitchen. And they scaled the business to 30 restaurants. And what about consistency, operational standards, training, and so on? Uh, can you give a bit of a little glimpse into how you dealt with that? Because I think that's one of the really, really remarkable things about the journey of Tender Greens as well. I'm not going to paint the picture that it was perfect because it wasn't. We were always touring restaurants and always tasting the mashed potatoes and always tasting the tomato soup and we would find them perennially under seasoned and it was always a thing right and so the mantra was always taste the mash taste the mash taste the mash so we were not perfect by any means but i'll say what we did uh early on was um one create a culture where everybody was responsible for tasting the mash in other words if you put it on the plate but you didn't taste it you were at fault, whether you were a supervisor or a line cook. So, and if you put too many olives on the plate in a, in a salad and somebody looked over at you, who was your colleague, your fellow salad maker and said, there's too many olives on that plate. The only acceptable response was thank you for letting me know. Now you're not the boss of me. You don't tell me what to do, but you're, you're right. There's too many olives. So we were self-policing. And that self-policing was great because it created leaders of everybody. Everybody felt like they had um, a hand in it. Uh, Pete Balistrieri, who's the VP of operations, who's been with the company since our second, well, since our first location, really. Um, he called it, I couldn't have named it this well, this, but he called it a culture of love and discipline. So the love is that you can actually taste somebody's feeling in the food because of the love of the salt, the love of the pepper, the love of the hands that were taking care of that food, the gentleness by which it was plated, uh, the care and precision of putting it on the plate. That's the love and the way that we certainly treat the people, the love, the love towards the guest. The discipline part is the desire to get it right every day, the desire to do it a little bit faster, a little bit better, uh, to care more, to push ourselves, to be best at what we're doing. And those two things had to happen every single day, every single minute in order for us to grow. So that's another piece. Um, I'd say that uh, another axiom for our company was uh, if you want to build a better broom, ask the guy that sweeps the floor. So we would, as we grew, one, go to our managers and say, how can we do this better? Two, ask the staff, the team, how can we do this better? And be open to, um, hey, you know what, if you, if you move this over here, that would make it a lot easier. You know, if, you, uh, if we're burning too many hazelnuts, then one way to do that would be to da -da 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 -da, set a timer for hazelnuts and make that the standard. Whatever it was that could make the product better could make the way that we create it better, our production method, the layout of equipment, the equipment itself. We're always open to evolution uh, to make it better. And then, um, and then to train and to standardize the things that we were doing and not to get too technical, but um, if you want to train people and you're not going to be there to do the training, lots of photographs, few words, a training structure, a training checklist, the ability to make sure that somebody got the information that they needed. And this turns things on its head a little bit in terms of how, um, how we train people in that we, 
the, the employer, we, the trainer, take responsibility for making sure the information is transmitted as opposed to holding somebody accountable for making sure that they understand it. We have to say, I'm going to make sure that you understand this. I'm going to say it to you in ways I'm going to check in with you. I'm going to make you do it. I'm going to have you demonstrate your proficiency at this. And we're going to do this until you know it as opposed to, dude, you better learn this by Friday. There's a quiz. From there, watching, creating, creating a culture of watching, of eyes open, of see when you look and hear when you listen. Make sure that they're saying what they're supposed to be saying at the cash register when they're giving change back. Make sure that they're handing the pen while the receipt is printing so that the two things happen at the same time. Make sure that the bussers are out on the floor doing the things that they are supposed to do and that they know the things that they need to know in order to be good. Set a higher standard than, okay, you want to be a busser? If you can lift 50 pounds, you're hired. No, we, I think we aspire to greater than that. We had so many examples of, I think this, this one's in the book, where the, the well-intentioned busser would be roaming the, the, the patio and the, and the guest would say, hey, can I have more dressing? And the busser would say, yes. And the busser would come back to the kitchen and say, I need more dressing. And the cook would say, which dressing? And the busser would say, I don't know. So if we could train the busser to look down at the plate and look at the salad and know which salad that is and therefore know which dressing that is and to come back to the kitchen and say, I need more horseradish dressing, then we can go and take care of that in one step. That's a commitment to training that says, I want to aim high for each one of these people so that they're learning stuff and they're growing and they're proficient and they're confident in front of the guest and that they can win. They can really win and they can be training for their next position while they're doing their first position. Yeah, and, uh, and, and that's super, super interesting. And it's these, you know, you feel you are, you're almost leaving one position while you're in it but you're slowly getting ready for the next step because I guess that's what's happened. And they already had a feel about what is demanded being a waitress, for example, what, how to look after people's plate, what they're doing, how they are acting, what are their body language saying about right now, how they feel about the, the meal, the whole experience in the restaurant. And that led me to thinking about as well as preparing for this, like in the book and also being on the Tinder Green's website, it feels like the, the customers are, are very engaged in this journey building the company. It, they're not just customers. They're almost part of a community. They have a very special relationship. And a couple of your advisors in this journey is also found in the customer group or the community. What did you do that was so special with your, your local uh, community that make people feel there was almost a pair, part of their life? It, it was more than a restaurant for them. That's a really great question. And I, I appreciate it because you know, when, when I meet people who have read the book and they show something back to me that I'm not necessarily thinking about, it shows me the depth of the, of the story. So that's an example early on. Um, our first round of financing was uh, friends and family. And the second round of financing, the second time we went out to, to raise money, it was all practically all customers. And those customers within the first few weeks of us being open were saying, hey, if you go out for money, can you let us know? Because I'd like to invest in this. How can I be involved? So already they were connected to the business opportunity of, 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 of our company of Tender Greens. And then they were also, because, because we were super open with them and cordial and we had hired nice, friendly people who wanted to connect, they would connect back. So they would give us feedback. Hey, you know, the patio is a little sloppy or your bathroom needs toilet paper or whatever. We would engage with them every so often. We would ask people, like if, if Eric and I and Matt decided what we really want to know is this. We'd say, okay, today, Eric, you're asking the question. So Eric would be out in the dining room asking me, what do you think of this? Or can I, can I have you taste this and tell me what you think? We were just engaging with them in ways that were meaningful. We were also supporting local events. So that we were building a trust. We were feeding police officers and firefighters um, so that we were creating, you know, local feeling of awareness. Um, we engaged with people, we talked to them, we asked them their opinions and, and what they thought for the brand. So people felt like they could take ownership a little bit of it. And 
the feedback was always really helpful. Um, and, and that feedback allowed us to, um, to grow. And because it, I think, I think because Michael, uh, people felt like a little bit of ownership, like that their opinion mattered, they felt really good about bringing people in. So we were, I, I remember when we were still behind the counter, people would come in and say, Oh, hi, David, these are our friends, the so-and-sos, and we're they're joining us for the first time. And then these people would go up to the menu and they would start describing how the menu works the same way that we described how the menu works to them. They would be explaining to their new friends, and this is how you order, and this is something that I like, and you should get this, and don't forget to get that. It's awesome because that was the feeling of, of like we're all in it together that we were trying to trying to foster. It, it almost feels like a bit like when you, you find the band, your, your rock band, and you, you want your friends to come uh, experience this. Like for me, yes, I've always been pulling people to Bruce Springsteen concert or Rolling Stones. And you need to experience this. This is like out of the body experience, you know. And, uh, and then you have to do this and this is going to happen. He's going to say that. Uh, so I really love that idea about it. it's almost like raving fans you're creating as you are both internally and externally. But not like you have conscious said, this is what we're going to create. It happens unconscious because the whole feel of want to serve, hospitality, want to make things better. I really, really like that. Um, how do you see it hospitality now? Because now you sit on the sideline. That's all you, you allude a bit to the pandemic and the challenges and, you know, still still coming out of it, the, the industry. Where, where do you see the industry now as it is and where it's heading? You know, it's 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 a it's quite bleak for some people. Other people are very successful in this, um, but it's a very changed industry. There's no doubt that we were severely impacted. You know, whether whether you whether you were um, if you, listen, if you weren't successful going into the pandemic, chances are you're not around anymore. And if you could hold on to the pandemic, God bless you. And 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 it's an amazing. But I think everybody is a little bit battle weary. We've had to do so much more with so much less. The staffing situation, at least here, and I imagine there too, is desperate. It's so hard to fill a weekly schedule. There's no extra cash to do the things that need done. For many of us, our restaurants haven't been painted in years, let alone you know the fabric on the cushions that's worn out and um but one thing that i think if we've made concessions in food quality if we've gone down what eric used to call the slippery slope of just you know managing to the bottom line it's time to start thinking about getting back to what made you great to begin with what made you special because we're all as customers tasting the difference, feeling the difference, noticing the skimpier portion. And restaurants are going to have a renaissance. They're starting. There is so much pent up demand for people getting away from the food that they've been making in their microwave ovens for the last two and a half years. Um, They don't want to eat the same food. They don't want to eat it in their little dining room or in front of their TV. They want to get out and see life. And restaurants are the last bastion for for social contact in that way. The, they are the community gathering spots, and people have realized how much they love that. I think there's post pandemic. There's a little bit of a let's let's forget about third party delivery for a minute. Let's actually get away from that. Let's put pants on and go out like big people like grownups and actually have a meal somewhere. Yes, we can't watch television while we're doing it, but I think that's going to be okay. People to have uh, a a well-made cocktail, a beautiful plate of food to be served, to be served by a friendly person who brings it is such a, a novel idea. My wife and I have started going out a little bit and it's such a pleasure, you know, I think people, um, I think people who are battle weary in the restaurant business need to appreciate that what we provide is something beautiful 
and in demand and needed for people to get out of their stuff, to go meet another couple, to go meet another family, to dine. Uh, and that we each in the restaurant business have a responsibility to put our best foot forward. Remember what it was like, even if it's, uh, I haven't adjusted my playlist in two and a half years, put some fresh music on, look at your lighting again. Yeah. Increase the portion size a little bit. If, if, if you know, you need to go back to using something more fresh and better up, up the spec on one produce item, two produce items, three produce items, get some fresh herbs, do something to come back to the place where you have more pride in what you've done and go away from the concessions that you made out of necessity and see what happens. Because I think we all deserve to feel a little bit more pride. We've been first responders for a long time and we've, and we've put ourselves and our staffs at risk to take care, not just to keep our businesses afloat, but also to support our communities. And um, I think the future is bright for the restaurant business and we need to take advantage of it, but we also need to be responsible for putting our best foot forward. Yeah, that's super interesting. You say the opportunity is there, but also we need to increase our, you know, your show, our standards, the, the, the hospitality we put on, because these are the businesses that will stand out and survive long-term as well and do really well. Because we still, as individual and human beings, need that, you know, space to go to, to to meet and connect and and, and get away from our inside walls of our homes. Yes, and I think also I'll just add this: I think we also need to look at our businesses with fresh eyes. We've been so down in the muck for so long, and if if you can't see it, ask a friend to come in and walk your restaurant for you and have him or her describe to you what they see. And it may result that you didn't see that certain things are tired beyond acceptable because you've been looking at it for so long, but that doesn't mean you can't go out and buy a $25 can of paint and freshen things up a little bit. It doesn't mean that you can't finally replace that missing toilet paper roll, you know, in, in the men's room that's been gone for six months that you keep thinking you're going to get to, but you never do own your business again with with some level of like wow i know it needs freshening and i'm going to freshen it in in cost effective ways that work for me great advice david but if you take you uh, as an individual and also looking at this whole transformation and paradigm shift that has happened and maybe are still happening what has you been your like deep internal learning over the last two years because it's already been two years now where we've been in this pandemic and we're now hopefully in the the last phase of it personally i guess to manage my expectations of myself has probably been the greatest learning the, the pandemic has come with great stresses and great demand and interrupted momentum you know when you're homeschooling your kids and you're trying to get a business off the ground and I have felt because I'm, I'm a doer that I've been spinning my wheels. And so I think it's important for me to have some level of compassion for myself and also celebrate the things that I did well. And I, I think others should too, like, wow, if you made it through the pandemic with a relatively intact family and a relatively intact business, kudos to you. And I can celebrate also that I managed to um, build a business and publish a book and take care of my family and to cultivate some more compassion for myself. It's not totally the way I imagined 2021 or 22 would look, but I'm okay. And I can also acknowledge, and I think others need to acknowledge how deeply tiring this period has been to give ourselves permission to be tired. Not to give up, but to give ourselves permission to really feel that. Professionally, I think one of the things that um, my work with my with my clients, my advisory work and coaching work with my clients, and the reception of the book, even you know the, the, your very kind comments about the book, have affirmed to me that the process that my partners and I used over our 
10 year span works and is a benefit and transfers across all different kinds of businesses. It's a place where um, purpose-driven business can be created. It's a model for that. Um, and I'm super committed not only to, um, to helping others, but to making that more accessible. My, my partner, Eric, and I are, are, are working on, um, on a year-long program to help entrepreneurs, to help founders, to help executives actually model this out for their own businesses and then do it. And to not to do it alone, to do it in a sort of mastermind community. So you're getting the, our, our framework and, um, and working with not just me, but working with a community of like-minded purpose-driven entrepreneurs who want to make it happen for their businesses as well. Now that sounds super interesting because I guess, uh, and you can you can confirm maybe that I know for a fact there's a lot of people out there that is going starts from the outset of being very purpose driven, and then when external money gets involved, that's where the battle starts. As the you know the founder and the you call them investors or financial partners get involved, you start to maybe feel that you have to put the purpose a bit on the back burner because that's not really what's valued anymore. It's the, the bottom line. It's the race to the bottom line. I guess it's both. As one of my mentors and advisors, Frank Viscara said, uh, when we made our, our, our deal, um, the good news is you got a big check. The bad news is you got a big check. I think that the, the, that the folks that invested uh, in Tender Greens believed wholeheartedly in the mission believed wholeheartedly in uh, aligning with a purpose-driven business. And as long as the business is functioning well and prosperous, then absolutely do all those things. And if it's not, figure out the ways to, uh, to fix it. And I don't think that means immediately cut out anything that's uh, new agey or overly purpose-driven or take out anything that's cool that you do with your, for your team members. I don't think it means anything like that, but it means uh, as an investor, they have uh, an expectation of a timeline for their return. And, and they were clear about that. Anybody that takes money from an institutional player has to know that. You can't be idealistic about that. And manage your business accordingly, man. And, 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 and yeah, you have to make tough decisions, but I don't think the first thing is cut your way to prosperity. I think I would rather, um, and you know, we, we made our fair share of mistakes in this way, but I would rather, um, grow revenue than cut cost. So how can we be creative about growing revenue? Because, um, the more sales you have, the less it's an issue. The less anybody's beating down your door to cut, 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 or to make reduction or to, um, I think it's, it's good. It's good training. I think it also points to the idea, Michael, that, uh, when, when, when some of your listeners do take on investment, they need to be upfront and clear with their potential suitors about what's important to them. Do you, are you aligned with the idea of doing good in the world and affecting communities and impacting data? And they say, yeah, yeah, it's fine. That doesn't sound like a commitment. That sounds more like, yeah, do it until we get your financials. But if they say, absolutely, we are, and here are some of the ways that we do that, then we know that that's important. And another thing is like, um, if we're committed together to doing those things, then we will think twice before we put that on the chopping block. And we'll think of other ways to get the ball through the hoop before we take away things that are actually meaningful to both sides. I, I love that, David. You also talk about the book. I just want to touch that before we, we tie up the conversation today. You talk about hard and difficult decisions. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Because that was really, for me, I never ever framed it like that before, but suddenly there was like some things that made clear. And I actually said to myself yesterday, I had to make a, a hard decision. And I used that framework. It was much easier for me. I just have to do it because it's just a hard decision. 
and it's just going to be worse if I keep on pushing it down the road. Sure. Well, I wish I could take credit for the wisdom, but uh, it's something that I, I learned among many lessons from uh, from Danny Meyer. And uh, the idea is this, that um, a difficult decision is difficult because the answer is unclear. Both sides could be argued easily. One could take any number of possible paths. And rushing to, um, to make the difficult decision and not taking the time to deliberate, to really thoughtfully think it through, um, reduces the chance of making a wise decision. That's a difficult one. A hard decision, by contrast, is actually uh, crystal clear. You know what to do. Maybe this is your situation um, yesterday, but um, it's crystal clear, but it's, but it's going to hurt. It's, it's, um, it's typically these choices around people, people in the organization that either have sort of outgrown their ability yeah. or, right? Um, and failure to make the hard decision in a timely way is one, it, it's this painful limbo. It's this unresolved issue that's been lingering for a long time. And that can do serious damage to the organization because as a leader, other people know that this decision is out there and it hasn't been made and the action has not been taken. Uh, and the organization's morale, the organization's uh, reputation, and ultimately its success are in jeopardy. And uh, I think when people listen to this, I, I'm, I was just thinking about a couple of examples in my career as well, where especially people decisions where I, I waited too long. And the impact of waiting too long was huge. You know, I had other people leaving the business. I didn't want to leave the business because I hadn't made my decisions. Uh, and, and this was actually a decision about myself. It was about stop doing something because uh, as a doer myself, uh, I maybe sometimes starts more than I can chew. <laughs> and therefore, I had to make some hard decisions uh, for myself and my own health, you know, and my own well-being. And again, having that balance you, you mentioned before, and that was my hard decision. And I just pushed it down the line for, you know, months instead of, I knew, I knew the itch was not there. And I just, I was just polite about it instead of saying, no, I can't participate in that because it's not the right thing for me. So I did it. I got the email together and it was all fine. You know, <laughs> everybody was happy. It was just in my head. It was playing around. Um, uh, what is uh, what is uh, the one thing you would have loved me I've asked you, uh, and what would you have answered? Oh my gosh! Uh, so it's funny that you were just saying how when you finally made the hard decision, everything was fine, and it was just in your own head. So um, the thing that I w wanted you to ask me was um, what's what's one of your funniest quotes uh, that you that you appreciate. So I would have answered. Um, and I think about this a lot when, when I'm feeling sorry for myself. Um, George Carlin, the comedian, um, is doing a news broadcast. And he says, a man has barricaded himself inside his home today. However, he is unarmed and no one is paying any attention to him. And for, for me, <laughs> that's what I can do to myself. And so I, I love that, like, yeah, man, just talk it out. Just say something, just do something as opposed to just being in your own head, feeling grumpy. Great, David. I love that. I love that. Where where can people find more about you, the, the book, uh, Quiet Advisory you're doing now? What's the best places to go? Uh, to learn more about me, to get in touch, to get on my calendar, to talk, um, quietadvisory.com. My social is at David T. Dressler. And uh, to pick up a copy of uh, the book, 10-Year Plan, you can go to 10yearplan.co. Great, David. Thank you so much for coming, sharing your stories. It's also giving, you know, the founders uh, like myself and others out there that really want to do something purpose-driven and, and show there's a way and, and sharing your your roadmap in your book and, and then the program that's coming up, you and Eric is doing, sound really, really interesting. So, so thank you for coming and sharing that and uh, sending you power and energy for, 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 the, for the time ahead. Right back to you, Michael. This has been such a great conversation. I'm really grateful. And, and, and also best wishes to you.
David, what a maverick journey and lots of great advice for founders out there on how to build a purpose-driven business. I would recommend you now to ask yourself, how can I build a business that is a force for good? To get further inspiration on how you build a business that gives more than it takes, please also tune in to episode number 150 with Carly Therese Grove, co-creator of Abop on how restaurants catalyze change. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels, which all now can be done via our new website at hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to BizSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their social at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly on advice at bizsimply.com. A big thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the newsletter and more Maverick insights at hospitalitymavericks.com. And don't worry, if you didn't get all of this, there will be links in the show notes. I'm Michael Tinkser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Mavericks podcast show. Be Maverick.